My favorite poet, Mary Oliver, said that the most regretful people on earth are those who hear the call to creative work, who feel the creative power, their own creative power, restive and uprising, and give it neither power or time. The most regretful people on earth are those who feel the call to creative work, who feel their own creative power, restive and uprising, and give it neither power nor time. Now, I know what you may be thinking. I'm not a creative type. And this could be perceived as a niche sermon, and by that I mean the one that kind of specializes in certain people's lives, because when it comes to the call to creative work, most of us view it as something special for the creative type. You know them. They wear colorful clothing. They're always talking about the weather in some poetic way. They've got at least three books in their bag at once. You know those people. They're telling you about the latest third idea of a book they have in the last week. You know, uh, they're painting in their free time. They have all kinds of clubs they go to. You're like, how do you have time for that? I do real things. I do things that make the world go around. You're like, I'm not the creative type. Now, I understand that because I think everybody has hit that valley at some point. But one of the unique aspects of Christianity is that we believe in a God who creates. And he created the humans. So right there, let's begin with, the Bible opens with creation. We should therefore be people who love the act of creation. Whether you're a creative type or not, we should be able to appreciate that. Because that's what our God does. But then he creates humans, and it says in his image, Genesis one twenty six, In the image of God, he created them. In his likeness. Now, What did God do? God created the world. He made us in that image, in that likeness. And he gave us the power to rule over his world. And he wants us to go and create. And so some of you have created things in your life. Some of you are in jobs that create. Some of you have been in things that create. Um, we're, we're supposed to create cultures for people that are inclusive and loving. We're supposed to create art. We're supposed to create music. We're supposed to create books. We're supposed to create uh, ways of living our faith in a world that's hostile or often changing and making us say, what do we do with this now, this new thing? Um, God has called us to be creators. And it's been said, it's been said that There's no such thing as creative people and non-creative people. It's simply a difference of people who use their creativity and people who don't use their creativity. Thankfully, we have a Bible full of authors who use their creativity. We have some great stories in the Bible, written so well, that literary scholars all agree the Bible is one great work of literature. Never to leave it just at literature, but at a starting point, it's masterfully done. Um, We have all kinds of poetry. Just look at your prophets in Jeremiah. You have, you have stories and then you have a lot of poetry. The poets got their point across with beauty, right? With creativity. Christians are really good at truth. We're really good at goodness. So wait, we know the truth, right? And we hold to it and we preach it. We're good at goodness, which is where we do nice things for people. 
but we're not always good at beauty. We don't always portray truth and goodness in a beautiful way. Sometimes we're angry and we're wanting to fight against culture or wanting to fight against that organization or wanting to yell and scream and holler or prove that these people have the wrong ideas and we're right. We don't always do that in a beautiful way, do we? Well, tonight we're going to see Jeremiah who is going to choose not to live regretfully because he's going to get a call to creative work and he's going to say yes to it. And I don't know where you are in a spectrum like this. I've been really nervous about doing a message like this because it's one of those, you're like, I really hope nobody's going to tune me out because like, "Eh, I don't finger paint. I don't do that. That's not what we're saying tonight because Jeremiah, as far as I know, Jeremiah didn't finger paint either. But he did answer a call that God gave him. And creativity has a spectrum, but I believe we need to fall on it somewhere. Now, my own story... I was a very, very, at least my parents told me, I was a highly creative little kid. And then, from what I remember, is I was very creative. I, I created worlds, just full on, I think a lot of kids do this. Kids are just good at creating worlds, they're good at creating scenarios. Avalyn, my daughter, is highly creative. Um, but then somewhere, you start to like get self-conscious, right? And you start to think about what cool kids do, and... To be creative is to be unique, is to be vulnerable, is to kind of stand out. And like all of a sudden you just want to blend in. If the world is gray, make me gray. And um, somewhere that happens, right? And then, believe it or not, <laughs> I, went to, I went to school to be a, you know, like one of those pastor schools. And man, did creativity get sucked out of me there. In the place where we worship the God who creates, the God of beauty, I lost creativity. Because the emphasis was upon books of theology, which I love and advocate. I've got a great one back there if you're looking for one, right? Books of theology. But, but the problem is we, we sometimes get so much into like splitting this whole, we take the, this colorful scripture and we then we say, here's the white parts and here are the black parts. And we demand that our spiritual leaders become experts at identifying white and black as if it was a hard thing. White and black. It was funny. Okay, whatever. Um, we, we get so, we, we train us to be so much into that, that who, who has time? Who has time to make it colorful? Who has time to do it beautifully? Who has time for creativity? Who has time for that? We have souls to save. We have money to make. We have jobs to perform. Who has time? The nation, I'm not, by the way, I'm not just pushing Christians in like this big hole of uncreated people. Like, it's, it's our culture. We now promote our children to get degrees in the area we call STEM, S-T-E-M, which stands for science, technology, um, oh, no, engineering and mathematics, STEM, because this is where you get money, right? These are the jobs you get money. But what have we left out of STEM? We've lost the A, the arts. And that's concerning to me. Yes, I know arts don't give you money, but that's not the point. Since when was being a human being all about how much money I can make? Are you breathing right now? Are you making money on that? I mean, seriously, consider it. Like, There's so much to being a human that's more than producing something that makes something for me. But that's how we've been taught to think in the modern era is everything must lead to progress. And if I take time to immerse in 
the creative, which is really another way of saying stepping into the world and seeing it in the beauty that God made it, that's not doing anything for me. Here's an example. Um, we were in Seal Beach, I think last weekend. Time flies, so who knows? It might have been two weekends ago. We were in Seal Beach, and that's where my grandma lives. So we were there, and um, I was studying for that week's message at a coffee shop. It was It's about a mile walk from my grandmother's house. And I walked there listening to Jeremiah via audiobook, right? I'm like, this is multitask. If I'm going to walk a mile, I'm at least going to get this book read, right? So I'm doing that. I, I study, and um looking outside, and it's like it's getting storm cloudy, and it's almost dinner time, so I'm going to go back to my grandma's house. I pack everything up, and I start walking, and I habitually get my phone, plug in my headphones, and I'm about to go, okay, so what chapter should I accomplish now? And I was moving on to something. You know, I'm pushing the study aside. I'm going to read a book for fun now or something to learn. You know, it's just something different. And then suddenly I was like, but look at this. It's about to sprinkle on me. The clouds are dark gray, tinged with black. And it's just, it's just like, and the, the air just, it's like, 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 like salty, like sea, almost going to rain kind of air. And I'm just like, why, why do I have this impulse to not just absorb the beauty of this about to storm day. Why, why do I want to just drown that out? Because, and I, I was literally having this dialogue with myself, right? I'm like, well, obviously, Brandon, because um, <laughs> this is a moment where I can accomplish something. I, th- there's these books I'm reading, and I can get through a chapter of this right now. So this is a great time to do it. Heaven knows I need more time to read, right? But then the other side of me is like, yeah, that's true. If everything about your life is simply to accomplish another task, you're right. But when's the last time you just enjoyed the environment around you while you walked? When's the last time you just let your thoughts wander rather than focus, 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 focus? And so I reluctantly said, yes, Brandon, you're right. By the way, the part of me that wins is always called Brandon, right? <laughs> so I, I, I pocket it, and I'm just going to walk. Now, so there's a part of us that's like, you didn't, you could have, you, you put something aside you could have accomplished. You're right, I did. But one of the things we have to keep teaching ourselves about life is that it's not simply a job or a task list to keep checking off. It's an experience to be absorbed. When the whole proverbial, when's the last time you stopped to smell the roses? That's, but that's a legitimate question. Now, I know there's not a ton of roses up here, but we have similar things. When's the last time you stopped when you saw the sunlight was just the perfect gold burnt with some orange as you're driving the 18? When's the last time you pulled over to enjoy that? Um, so we're usually like, yes, you know, oh, this song's my favorite. Um, I'm not saying you have to do that every time, but it's just when's the last time we, we had reverence for the world we walked in? So this is, this is where we're talking about the call to creative work is we cannot reduce ourselves to, to beings of, that work on STEM only. Now, STEM makes the world go around. That's fine. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. But we also need to, to breathe and be human. And when I say be human, you're like, what does he mean? Well, of course we're humans. What, what we mean by human is the biblical vision of the human who's created in the image of God. God saw something beautiful in what he made. We are a work of art to him. 
So to live fully alive as a human is to get in touch with all of that, that God made me as a being first, only to accomplish things second. We'll become richer and more alive if we stop reducing ourselves to what we do and don't do. Utilizing every moment to multitask. Hey, it's addicting. In the modern era, it's really addicting to... You can text message people, check your emails, and play a game on your phone in the same five minutes. I don't know what good it's doing us, but we can do it. That's part of the thrill, I guess. So, okay, so what's going on here? So, the call to creative work. um, So, back to Mary Oliver, she said, The most regretful people in the world are those who feel that call to creative work, who feel their creative power restive and uprising, yet decide not to give it either power or time. Um, We're going to see in this passage two people who are that regretful sort. You're like, no, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to stick with being conformed by the environment around us. Then we're going to see Jeremiah, who takes up the call to creative work. So, um, look with me. We're going to, we're going to actually look mostly at chapter 36. But I want us to see chapter 37 first. Now, if you've been with us, you will remember Jeremiah can be confusing in the fact that he is not chronological. He jumps from the last king to the third to the last king to the second to the last king to the third to the last king to the last king all, all, all the time. He's jumping around like that. So, remember the easy way to remember the last king? You know that you're within the last ten years of Israel's existence uh, is Zedekiah. His name is, starts with a Z. Just think, it's the end. So now you know, when you open chapter 37, we're in the last 10 years before Jerusalem is leveled by the Babylonians. So in 37, you see that Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Keniah, the sons of Jehoiakim. But neither neither he nor his sons, nor the people of the land, listened to the words of Yahweh that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Surprise. So King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelmiah, And Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maesa, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to Yahweh our God. Now Jeremiah was going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. He will soon. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Okay, so they're like, oh no, the Babylonians are about to get us. That's why they're saying, pray for us. But the Egyptians come to the rescue and the Babylonians go away. So Israel thinks they're, our friends, the Egyptians saved us. But the word of the Lord came, the word of Yahweh in verse 6, came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, has sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And guess what? When the cats away, the mice play, right? Yeah, so Egypt's going away. Guess what's going to happen? Verse 8. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against the city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says Yahweh, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent they would rise up and burn the city with fire. 
Oh, the sarcasm of Jeremiah. Even if you guys could defeat their army, God would surely use all their lame and crippled to come and take you down. So you don't have a chance. Now, um, Jeremiah, because he says this, and then as Babylon retreats, the land now finally, right? The siege is gone. The Babylonians aren't suffocating you. They're not on the roadways. You're not stuck inside, afraid to go out. I think you finally go outside, right? Everybody's going outside. It's like the first day of spring, right? Everyone's like, oh, sunshine, flowers, and they're frolicking around outside. Jeremiah decides to stretch his legs and get some fresh air. He begins to leave the city to go. Do you remember last week how he bought a field from his cousin, to prove to everybody how certain he was that God was going to bring the people back to the land, that he bought a field. Well, he's going out to go look at this field. He's stretching his legs, and someone stops him and says, uh, where do you think you're going, Jeremiah? I'm going to go, no, you're not. You're going to desert to the Babylonians. We know your type. You've been preaching to us to surrender to them for years. We know what you're doing. You're going to go tell the Babylonian king all the plans of our people. Come with me, Jeremiah. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. If you cannot afford a tournament, yeah, I mean, all that stuff. So Jeremiah is taken to prison on false charges that he was trying to go desert to the Babylonians. It's good being a prophet, isn't it? But... When Jeremiah, this is verse 16, when Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there for many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from Yahweh? And Jeremiah said, there is. Why are we whispering? (laughs) But you see, Zedekiah is doing secretly because he secretly admires Jeremiah, who recognizes that God is working through him, but he's afraid of his princes and all of his elders who think that Jeremiah is a lunatic who's against the nation, right? So you have this wishy-washy king who's in secret trying to find out what the truth is. So Jeremiah says, there is. And he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. (laughs) Servant whistles. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now here, please, O my lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you and do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, lest I die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. Now, we don't know a lot about like the prison system in Zedekiah's household. There's not a lot of documentation that survived his kingdom because it got destroyed. All we can guess is that he got a, an upgrade, right? He went from bad prison cell to sweet prison cell of a sort. And, and, and he was given a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So Jeremiah is favored by King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah has no backbone, he keeps him in prison. So the same situation sort of happens here. Um, Jeremiah is preaching in 38 verse 2. He says, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans, who surrenders to Babylon, shall live. He shall have his life as a prize for war and live. Okay. Now, the officials in verse 4 said to the king, 
Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. Now, again, Jeremiah is apparently out of prison. So, again, Jeremiah's um, the book's sort of back and forth timeline. This is apparently another time when Jeremiah was not imprisoned. He's going to be imprisoned here in just a moment. So, if you're confused, it's because you're reading it, right? He's not in prison right now. Um, so, now look what King Zedekiah says in verse 5. We see him waver again. He says, Behold, Jeremiah is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Talking to himself, about himself in the third person, right? Look, you do what you want, I won't do anything. I'm going to look the other way. So, what Zedekiah does is he caves into his princes and his officials. He caves into their pressure. Hey, this guy is not good news. He's telling our soldiers to retreat and go to Babylon with their hands up. How are we ever going to defend our city if everybody just gives up and gives in to the Babylonians? Put this guy in prison. He's killing us. Uh, I don't know what to do. You guys deal with it. Okay. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern. This time it's like a pit. And it, you see that uh, he was lowered by ropes and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Okay. But he is delivered. Uh, a guy named Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch. He uh, gets Jeremiah delivered out of the pit. Now we flash forward to verse 14, and you see Zedekiah once again. He's playing both sides. King, this is for, verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of Yahweh. Here he is being secretive again, right? Meet me at the third entrance on the left of the second tree so no one can see us. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? In other words, it's very bad news, so promise you won't kill me and I'll tell you the truth. And if I give you counsel, will you not listen to me? Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as Yahweh lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. So Jeremiah then can say to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your household shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. So Zedekiah, you're the king, dude. Like, your life is in your hands, Jeremiah is saying. Make a good choice. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. And Jeremiah promises that won't happen. But what you see here is the background of Zedekiah who is wavering because he can't decide, should I give my allegiance to this prophet and do what he says God's telling me to do, or should I keep the people of power around me happy? I am afraid. I don't know what to do. This is a man who 
in his position, was given the call to creative work. He can figure out an ingenious way to bring this people to the hands of Babylon in a way that will keep everything intact in the city and in the temple, in a way where they can maybe strike a deal where they can have a pretty plush life in Babylon. Because all the Babylonians want is for them to surrender. They don't want to brutalize everybody. They want this easy, right? They've got Egypt to conquer next. They want to save all their soldiers' strength. Zedekiah is in a wonderful position, but he refuses because creativity is scary. Creativity requires vulnerability because you have what following every creative work? You have critics. And Zedekiah says, I'm afraid. In a sense, he says, I'm afraid of the critics. I'm afraid what they will say about me. I can't do that. Nobody wants me to be like that. Zedekiah ends regretfully in chapter 39. The fall happens finally. Babylonia comes back. This is the end. 39 is the end. It says the fall of Jerusalem in my Bible. Zedekiah knows it's the end. So what he does is in the middle of the night, he grabs his favorite people and they go out the back door of the palace, down the back secret emergency exit through the city. But when you're running in a wilderness where all the trees have been hacked down to siege the city, like there's nowhere to hide. You can run, but you can't hide, Zedekiah. And Babylon finds them. You find a king on the run, oh, they're not going to be, oh, you poor guy. They're like, ah, this is a king, and they totally make fun of him. They kill his sons in front of him, and then they gouge out his eyes. Then they take him in chains and embarrass him in Babylon. Great end. Yeah, that that is a regretful life because he refused the call. Now we come to chapter 36. Where are we on the timeline? Chapter 36, we have the King Jehoiakim. This is... Um, this is the... Well... This is the king right before Zedekiah. There was one king named Jeconiah. He's nicknamed Coniah. Um, he ruled for three months. It wasn't a big deal. But So Jehoiakim. He is the son, by the way, of King Josiah. Do you remember King Josiah? This was back in um, Kings. When we finished Second Kings, I think Pastor Mike taught on Josiah. I don't remember teaching it, so he must have. Josiah led a revival when they found the book of Deuteronomy in the temple blow the dust off like oh my goodness how have we neglected this he opens it up he finds all these things that they're supposed to be doing to obey god the whole nation has this revival right jeremiah becomes a prophet during this king's reign so he's part of the revival he sees it happening when we open chapter 36 we're 17 years after this revival and we have jehoiakim one of josiah's sons now on the throne so we're the next generation right after the revival well he has absolutely no regard for the revival he's like the book of deuteronomy oh yeah my dad preached that all the time at the dinner table it was so annoying like that book never stops repeating itself that's like his attitude so we're, we're here with Jehoiakim 17 years after the revival and Jeremiah has this moment with him in the fourth year, 36 verse 1, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Take a scroll and write. 
on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. So Jeremiah has been preaching, uh, we reckon somewhere like 20 something years at this point. So, all right, Jeremiah, make a memoir of all your struggles in the message, right? Like this is your time, autobiography. Bring my word to the king. So he makes a scroll. Um, God in verse 3 says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intended to do to them, intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So, verse 4, Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh that he had spoken to him. So back then, you'd often have somebody write for you. you dictate. We today have the beautiful technology of a typewriter, right? A keyboard. You can get your thoughts out almost, unfortunately, not quite, as fast as you're thinking them. Um, but back then, scribe, oh yeah, it takes a long time to get each letter written. So Jeremiah is pacing back and forth, trying to keep the train of thoughts going while he's letting Baruch catch up, right? And he's spitting out words. Um, and Baruch's like, what'd you say? No, no, three sentences ago. What? I don't remember. No, the third word of your third sentence. How do I remember? You know, there's all that going back and forth. But this is how they did it, okay? You would talk and somebody else would write it for you. So Baruch is writing it down. Um, Baruch has to go now take the letter because Jeremiah has been banned from the temple. You might remember why. He had a very fire and brimstone sermon down there at the temple. So Baruch takes the letter, or the scroll, to the temple, and he begins to read it to the people. And of course, there's quite a reaction. What is this? So, in verse 9, in the fifth year... Of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before Yahweh. Then, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. In the house of Yahweh, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate in Yahweh's house. So he's in this place where there's some very important people, and he's reading the scroll to them, and they're listening. Now, when, verse 11, Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shephan, heard all the words of Yahweh from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch had read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudai, the son, there's a lot of names, just bear with it, uh, the son of Nathanai, and Shalmai, a son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. Mouths open, right? Eyes as big as saucers. Did you just hear that? And they said to Baruch, 
We must report these things to the king. Then they asked Baruch, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, Yes, Jeremiah dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on a scroll. Well, yeah, we got that part. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Okay, so these officials hear him read it in the temple. They gather him to with more officials. They hear him read it again, and they're all like, you got to be kidding me. The king needs to hear this, but he's not going to like it. So Jeremiah, you and Baruch, go hide. Hide when the king reads this, because it's not going to be pretty. But he needs to hear it. So... Some of the officials are totally on board with what Jeremiah wrote. Now you might be wondering, and as I am, what on earth did Jeremiah write? We're not told. The assumption is, though, that he it's everything in the book up to the reign of Jehoiakim as we're reading it. So, um, much of the early chapters. Some of them dealt with later parts. But you can just assume it's very much what we've already studied. Especially these words that we hear over and over. If you want to live, surrender to Babylon. Jeremiah just got so tired of saying it. Please surrender to Babylon. Don't fight against them. You won't make it. So Jehoiakim now gets to hear it in verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudai, so they told him about it. Now the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll. I want to hear this from myself. And he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudai read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. Now, it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the pot before him. Dun, 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 dun. As Jehudai read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. I mean, Americans don't like our flag being burnt. Pretty sure God doesn't like his prophet scroll being burnt either. This is a deliberate statement about where Jehoiakim stands in the whole mess. Now, Jehoiakim, that's what you need to know about this guy. First of all, he's the prince of a king, a very well-loved king, Josiah. As most princes are, he's probably spoiled, right? He's a brat. He ascends the throne, not out of any... He didn't deserve it at all. He just kind of, well, first brother's dead, dad's dead, it's my turn. Show everyone what I can do. Now, you might remember Jehoiakim from earlier in the book. Jeremiah had some very mean things to say about him. I think it was chapter 22. Um, Jeremiah, yes it is. Jeremiah basically called him out and said, what? Chapter 22. You think you're a king because you can build extensions to your mansion? That makes you a king because you have more cedar than everybody else? You're taxing the kingdom to death to pay off these nations? And you're expanding your palace? So he has, there was that rant you may remember about how you are just so selfish. That's Jehoiakim, spoiled brat. How does he become king? He becomes king. Yes, his brother died and his dad died. But he had another brother, Zedekiah, who will reign later, right? Um, He became king as the Egyptians came along and said, 
do you want us to beat you up? And Israel said, no, not really. So the Egyptians said, well, then put Jehoiakim on the throne. He's a weakling. We can deal with him. So Jehoiakim was put on the throne because the Egyptians wanted him. So basically, he's a king over the people in part, but he's actually a servant to the Egyptians, right? So, he has agendas. He can't surrender to Babylon like Jeremiah wants him to do. That would make his Egyptian overlords upset because they're using Jehoiakim as a buffer so when Babylon comes down, they can't get to Egypt because Israel's in the way. Jehoiakim is not his own person. Jehoiakim's a puppet. Jehoiakim is having his decisions made for him. I'm not trying to excuse the fella. He needs to have a backbone. But that's why, let me cut this thing up. Nobody should hear about these words. We are not giving in. Verse 24. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. That's a really interesting phrase, nor did they tear their garments, because that's what people would do when they were repentant, shred the clothes, and say, we're sorry. They refused. But it's even more interesting because his dad did tear his garments back in First Kings, um, First Kings 22, verse 11. Second Kings 22, 11. You can read that Josiah, his dad, when they found the book of Deuteronomy from the temple and dusted it off, he tore his garments and said, we're sorry for not following the law. We will now. Well, his son hears the word of God and says, I'm not going to tear my garments. I'm going to tear it. And he shreds it to pieces. Well, how does Jeremiah feel when Baruch comes back and says, I think they burned it? Like, he spent a lot of time writing this thing. I haven't written a book, but I can't imagine how painful that would have been to write a book and watch it be burned. That's what the king thought of your words. (laughs) So what does God say in 27? Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll. (laughs) Do it again. But, look at verse 30. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim, the the king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat by day and the frost by night. Now, we have no biblical record of Jehoiakim's death, but as far as we know um, from other records, like Josephus, uh, he was killed and thrown over the wall and left there. Just, uh, here comes a king's body over the wall. Kind of like what you do with a pumpkin after Halloween, throw it off your deck. So, he doesn't get a king's burial. His father got a rich burial. They wrote laments for his father. This king, eh, another one bites the dust. Because of his attitude towards God's word. So here, here we see, we see Jehoiakim, who lives a regretful life. He has this, this call to answer this creative work Jeremiah produces to lead the nation into a much more colorful life rather than just survival, but let's figure out how to thrive in a new and exciting land, follow God's will for us. He doesn't, and he dies a regretful death. Zedekiah also dies a regretful death. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the person we want to emulate here. So, 
Jeremiah was told in verse 2 to take a scroll and write. That's the call to creative work. Take a scroll and write. You may not have a scroll and a pen. That may not be your thing. Maybe a paintbrush. It may be a hammer. It may be the red pen of a teacher. <laughs> it may be the wrench of a mechanic. Um, it may be the hand of a mother changing diapers, feeding kids. I mean, there's so many different scrolls and pens that we can be called to take up. But he's called to take it up and write. Now, in all these things, we can go through them as if they're just duties. Or we can take them up the way you would if God says take up a scroll and write. And you're not sure how to start, right? You ever stared at a blank page? You get a new journal. I don't know if you, any of you journal. It's a really good idea to journal. You should journal. If you open up that brand new journal you put money into and you're like, ah, what do I write? Especially the first page. It's like, it's the first page. It's got to be great. Um, I can't do it. Jeremiah is called to do something where he's got to put his creative energy into it. He's got to put his creative energy into it. But you know what happens when we do choose to pick up that tool in our hand and to use it creatively? Is that it may be challenging at first to think outside the box, but when you first do, when you first start, yeah, it's like, oh, this is going horribly. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Creativity is something that we have to cultivate because we lose it, right? We grow up we're like, ooh, kids imagine things, not adults. Um, but we, we try to cultivate that again and it takes some practice. But then, you know what happens? When you write that first page in that journal, Jeremiah writes the first half of that scroll. You begin to do your new creative venture with your other tool. Um, you begin to see the world differently. You pick up a camera and start practicing photography, you will never see settings the same again. You will never see them the same again. Everything looks different now because you see it not only from my point of view, but from a camera's point of view and from an artistic point of view. Um, maybe the spatula is the thing in your hand. You start to experiment with foods and learn about foods and you make it and you're like, I'm not just going to put things in the microwave anymore. I actually want to experiment with like creating something. You will never look at food the same again. Because suddenly there's more color and there's more joy to life. It, it goes this way with anything you do. The reason it's important for us to hear God's call when he tells you and I to take up your scroll and write is because he is inviting us to a fuller form of living so that we don't die regrettably like Zedekiah and like Jehoiakim. So that we don't close off the possibilities of God's leading in his will by saying, that's not how we've done it before. The box is powerful and it wants to keep us trapped. What do you mean surrender to the Babylonians? There's only one way to rule a kingdom and that's to fight and survive. I'm not going to listen to God's creative plan. What is that? 
The box is powerful and it wants to keep you in. That's why every dictator who wants to keep control over people immediately goes after religious figures and artists. Because they're the ones that challenge us to not live in the box. God wants to lead us out of the box. He's the great artist. He's the great leader who says, My child, why don't you just move an inch out of your comfort zone a little bit? The world, you move one inch from your perspective and you see the world in another dimension. In a whole other dimension. Take a scroll and write. That was Jeremiah's call to creative work. You and I, what is God putting on your heart? What is he stirring? Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form, and it was void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. What happened? Then, then verse 3, God said, let there be light. And then, you know, he goes on for a few more days and things happen. Creation happens. When it says that the Spirit hovered over the waters, it refers to a stirring or a vibrating or a jiggling in a sense. There's movement. Something's being stirred. And you and I know what it feels like to have something stirred in our heart. That is the call to creative work. Something you may not have done before. The stir happens. Jeremiah picks up the pen. He writes. But sometimes you say, "Mm, no, 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 no. That's not me. I can't do it. I won't do it. I refuse to do it. That's what Jehoiakim said as he cut the scroll. I can't do it. Snip, snip, snip. I won't do it. Snip, snip, snip. I refuse to do it. Snip, snip, snip. The call, hey, take up your scroll and write. No, shrimp. No, no. That's a really dangerous place to be. Not only because you see how Jehoiakim ends, but you don't want, as, you're like, I'm a Christian, I'm not going to be Jehoiakim. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But you don't want to get to a place where you gain a reputation with God as being someone who's difficult to work with. Because then the one of two things will happen. God will say, Oh, you won't listen, huh? I have my ways. (laughs) Or he will say, okay, well, Bob is open, so I'll use him. And then you wonder why Bob has joy and you don't. You don't want to get a reputation to be difficult to work with. So when you feel that stirring to do something, like, but I haven't done that before. I've never talked to that person. That person's out of my, my similarity zone. Then you are refusing God's call to creative work. Jeremiah could have been like, "Mm, I know what they do to my letters. I already know he's not going to listen, but God wanted him to write. God wanted him to write. You know, you might think, but that's been done before. Or that, that, that's, there's nothing new. Well, listen. Josiah found Deuteronomy 17 years later. It's not a lot of times. 17 years Jehoiakim's like, that's old news, Deuteronomy. Who cares about that old, worthless book? What? So Jeremiah says, well, maybe the new generation needs to hear the old message in a new way. That's creative work. Let's bring this in a different way Jehoiakim hasn't heard it before. Just because Jehoiakim didn't listen doesn't mean he failed. 
The others listened. They were all excited. The king's got to hear this, but he won't like it. Um, but then, but then here's the reason we also like to refuse the call to creative work. As I opened, I said, sometimes you don't feel like it's productive. Creative is not always productive. And that's true. But we also refuse the call to creative work because huh, we're afraid of the Jehoiakims in our life, the critics. Hey, I wrote this song for Jesus. Um, I have no idea if I'm good at it or not. So I'm not going to share it with anybody. In fact, I'm not going to try next time. I'm just too embarrassed about it. Because if I play it for Micah, he's going to laugh at me. He's going to tell me I have no business playing. Like, you think that was cool? Like, Chris Tomlin writes way better songs than you. Why even bother? There's way good music out there. Like, I know, I know. So we're afraid. We're afraid of the Jehoiakim who's going to take our product to take our creative work, to take the expression that God wants to do through us, and he's going to say, nope, ugly, I don't care, it's stupid, and they're going to cut you down to size. And that's the reason we like to keep it safe. I don't want to journal. What if somebody reads it and laughs at my life? I don't want to teach the Bible at men's breakfast or at ladies' study. Uh, what if, what if I, I put my words in the wrong order? I speak dyslexically. That's, that's what I, I put my words. Okay, you see how I'm doing it. I, and they laugh at me. Stop it, guys. What if I say John 16.3 instead of John 3.16? For the world so loved God that, no, God so loved the world, and then they laugh at me. Creative work takes vulnerability. Yeah, there's a possibility. That Jehoiakim, he's in the back row tonight. They're always in the back row, right? He's here tonight. He's laughing. He's telling, he's going to tell everybody how Pastor Brandon just blubbers on too long. Um, someone said amen. Great. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's a quote of popular singers, popular song some time ago. Haters are going to hate. They do. Jehoiakim is always going to be Jehoiakim. Are you really going to let Jehoiakim rule your life? The most regretful people in the world, right, are those who give neither power nor time to the creative call. Even when they feel it bubbling, they feel the stir, they feel this hunger, they feel like, I don't know why, I'm not a writer, but I just want to journal, or I, I just want to cook, or I just want to, I just want to play with children, or I have this craft thing I want to do, or, or I don't know, the Rains had this painting thing at their house, like, it just sounds fun, why not? They did, by the way. That's, so that's God calling us to, sometimes you just need to get out of your rut. You need to see the world more colored in a different way. But I don't want to get cut down. Well, okay, Jeremiah did, okay? So let's see what you do. Jeremiah got cut down to size, and what did God tell him to do in verse 27 and 28? Verse 28. Take another scroll and, scroll and write. That's it. That's it. Who cares? Jehoiakim cuts you down to size. He says, you're worthless. You have no point in doing this. But did you enjoy it? Did you feel the presence of God? What's it, chariots of fire or something? The guy, Ben-Hur. I feel his pleasure when I run. Is that Ben-Hur? You guys are all looking at me like, come on, young kid. I know. I feel his pleasure when I run. Do you feel the energy and creative 
likeness of God through you in what you do. It does not matter what Jehoiakim and his gang says about you. And honestly, it doesn't matter what you say about me and my sermons. It really doesn't. See, I was at a a worship leader conference back when I was... Wow, I was in youth group, yeah. So I started leading worship when I was in youth group. And um, our youth pastor took us to a worship leaders conference. And I remember this hit me so powerfully. The guy talking up there was saying something about... And he was going on, he was waxing so poetically, but I remember this part so well. He said... And it doesn't matter if nobody comes to your worship service. You lead the chairs in worship because you are a worship leader and that's what you do. And I, I, he was like choking up and everything. I was like, whoa, like, I don't know if I'm called for this kind of thing. This is like intense, but it is so true. We cannot enter into God's work with the expectation of it's going to accomplish this or people are going to applaud it. We enter into the creative work. That's why it's a call. Because this is who we are. And it doesn't matter if two people turn out every week to Sunday night Bible study. If God is still putting words on my heart, I will tell it to the chairs. Actually, I think that's partly why I started the B-Side podcast, if you follow the podcast, is because I just had more to say, and nobody will listen, so I just figured out talking to a microphone, and <laughs> somebody might stumble upon it. Um, but that's what you do. So listen, friends, I know, it's sort of that odd sermon, right? You're probably not going to hear one of these again for another 10 years, but it's fine. Um, but this is the point, is that God has been calling something out of you. But we've been resisting, saying, that's not a good use of time, or people are going to say this, or I'm just not good at it. But you're missing it, right? Things like American Idol have killed us because we think that singing's about being the best. And, and the whole system of, you know, Simon, whatever his name is, and their criticism, we feel like that's what life is. And so we hear somebody get up to preach, we're like, mm, yep, nah, the other guy is better than that. Or we hear someone sing, we're like, yeah, because we're so used to hearing the best and we hear criticism, we're like, now we know how to think that way. It's, it's killing our, our ability to just be creative for the fun of it, for the fact that God does it, for the fact that we want to be closer to Him. So, if you're not going to be a worship leader, but you want to write a worship song, write it. It doesn't matter if Richard never sings it. It doesn't matter if he rejects it when you submit it to him. It doesn't matter. You wrote it because that was between you and God. And it was, did something for your soul. You might write a short story for children. It doesn't matter if nobody thinks children will like it. It did something for you. You are different because you obeyed the word of God. Yeah? So take another scroll. You're going to fail. You're not going to like it. Keep taking the scroll. Keep writing. Because you're going to get it. It's going to do something for you. Take another scroll. Keep going. Keep going. I just want to finish with this incredible analogy that... um, In fact, I'm going to read it instead of butcher it. Do you guys know a wrinkle in time? So the author is Christian. You may have known it through a movie, but it was a book first. Um, 
the book is very Christian, and the author's a Christian, and she writes this in another book. It's amazing. To paint a picture, or to write a story, or to compose a song is an incarnational activity. What? <laughs> Keep listening. The artist is a servant who is willing to be a birth giver. In a very real sense, the artist should be like Mary, who, when the angel told her that she was to bear the Messiah, was obedient to the command. Obedience is an unpopular word nowadays, but the artist must be, and by the way, artist is all of us, okay? The artist must be obedient to the work, whether it be a symphony, a painting, a story for children, figuring out how children's ministry works, putting together a Bible study, talking to your neighbor about Christ. It's all an art form. I believe that each work of art, whether it is a work of great genius or something very small, comes to the artist and says, here I am and flesh me, give birth to me. And the artist either says, My soul doth magnify the Lord and willingly becomes the bearer of the work, or refuses. But the obedient response is not necessarily a conscious one, and not everyone has the humble, courageous obedience of Mary. As for Mary, she was little more than a child when the angel came to her. She had not lost her child's creative acceptance of the realities moving on the other side of the everyday world. We lose our ability to see angels as we grow older, and that is a tragic loss. Are we losing our ability to see what the kingdom of God looks like in a mundane world? Because we're too sophisticated for the imagination? Are we losing our ability, our childlike ability to say yes to God's crazy call? Because we're so much more strategized than that. We know the ways of men and kings and kingdoms. (laughs) Yeah, Mary had to say yes to something bizarre. I don't know if you've just meditated upon the fact that an angel comes to you and says, hey, you don't know a man, but you're going to be pregnant. Do you accept this? What? I would check what I ate for dinner because this is not going down like a normal day. But Mary says yes. She has the openness to realize God can do these things, and I am up for it. And every time an idea comes to us, A vision comes to us. God stirs our heart to do something. It is like that. It's like an angel coming to us and inviting us to bear the blessing and love of God to the world. But we have a barrenness in our land, I believe, because we have a Christianity that is not willing to say yes to the call of creative work. So Jeremiah was told, take a scroll and write, and he did. He failed. So he was told to take another scroll and write, And he did. Will you? Father, we confess our tendency to limit your possibilities.